0: Welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me is someone who knows what he's doing, Sean.
1: Probably shouldn't trust me, though. (laughs) Probably not a good idea. But I do occasionally know what I'm doing.
0: Sure, sure. (laughs) Well, this week we watched Sledgehammer... Exclamation point. The uh, 80s series that spoofed Dirty Harry and other movies of the rogue cop genre, it follows the exploits of a man named Sledge Hammer, who fights violence with violence, along with his favorite partner, his custom forty-four Magnum pistol, to whom he often speaks.
1: Not to be confused, the Peter Gabriel song with the same name, Sledgehammer, it's a whole different thing.
0: Yes, and we'll get into that too. That, that, there's a connection there.
1: Oh, yes, okay.
0: So, uh, for this episode of the podcast, we watched the pilot entitled Under the Gun. It originally aired on ABC on September 23rd, 1986. It was written by Alan Spencer and directed by Martha Coolidge.
1: Yes, quite a show. I remember seeing this one, um, this is my idea for the podcast this week. I, I did see this show when it first, when it was originally airing, because of course you can't find it anywhere now, unfortunately. Well, um, it, it
0: did have a home video release.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, who has that, really? I mean, <laughs> I do remember watching this as a lad of about eight, I would say. So, 86, so I would have been eight. Watching Sledgehammer, it's, it's very, yeah, very, very vivid memories of this show. Enjoying it, liking it. Watching it again at, at 38, 30 years later. I mean, it's not, it's more ridiculous than anything else. We'll go into that. But, yeah, I, I remember jo- enjoying the show. I remember watching, I think, the entire two-season run. Or, or most of them, at least, because I remember a lot of the plot points that were brought out in some of the episode guides and Wikipedia and things like that. So, yeah, this is one of my – my. I think one of the reasons I really enjoyed this show is this uh, – the main character, Sledgehammer, reminded me a lot of Tackleberry from the Police Academy movies.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Um, and I really love the Police Academy movies, especially as a kid. And, <laughs> you know, Tackleberry's love of weapons also. And so I think that's kind of what hooked me on this show. It just was was funny, you know.
0: Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Police Squad, you know, that that Frank Drebin vibe. Although, uh, we'll see, Sledgehammer is a little more uh, (laughs) hands-on and uh, action-oriented than Frank Drebin was. But it's quite the, the spoof, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Now, the version of the pilot that we watched was not the one that originally aired. Because originally, in the first airing, this show started with canned laughter for all of the jokes, believe it or not. It totally defeats the purpose of, you know, playing the jokes completely straight and deadpan. Like if you remember police squad, they never had no laughter. You know, that's no. it yeah. really doesn't work. It'd be like watching the movie airplane with with people laughing at all the jokes, you know?
1: I'm so glad they took that off for the pilot pilot because that's that's kind of ridiculous to have the candle laughter. it's It's a comedy, but then not that kind of comedy. You can almost trick somebody into thinking it's a real cop show. In the, the candle laughter, would totally ruin that effect. I think it's really a yeah. spoof of like a, a dirty Harry. That's you know basically what you think of when you when you watch uh, Sledgehammer. And yeah, I'm glad they got rid of the candle laughter.
0: Yeah, supposedly when they were first kind of showing this show to test audiences, they liked it better with the candle laughter. Wow. And Al- Alan Spencer absolutely hated it and requested that ABC remove it. And finally, the network, you know, kind of acquiesced, starting only with episode 14. So that that's how long the canned laughter lasted into the run of the show. And because Alan Spencer now owns the rights to the show, he had the canned laughter removed from the first 13 episodes on the DVD sets. So the original airing had canned laughter for 13 episodes, which I can't imagine it had, you know, such the success that it did. You know, because it really just undermines the, the whole premise of the show, is that it's supposed to be this cop show played very, very seriously. You know, if someone just tunes in kind of in the middle of the episode, like you said, they might think it's a real cop show.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't recall, I mean, it must have been there. I don't remember the candle after when I was a kid, but again, it was 30 years ago, so <laughs> my memory might be lacking. But I don't remember that aspect of it.
0: Yeah, it kind of ruins ruins it. I'm glad we yeah. saw it the, the way it was intended
1: yeah, especially when some of the stuff he does as we'll go into in this episode, especially it's so ridiculous. I mean, having that laughter ahead of of the joke would totally you know undermine it, like you said and ruin it. so yeah, uh, you kind of have to experience it, make it more of a surprise when he actually does these things. it's definitely more entertaining without it.
0: Now, this series was, as I mentioned, created by Alan Spencer, who wrote this pilot script as a teenager in 1976. And uh, back then, he wrote it as a parody of Dirty Harry. And uh, back then, not only did the networks hate it, they were concerned about his mental health. Because they were (laughs) reading this thing, and the violence was so excessive, they thought, you know, something was wrong with this kid. So years later, the third Dirty Harry movie, uh, it was called Sudden Impact... It did so well at the box office, networks kind of started to show some interest in this kid that had a, a Dirty Harry parody. HBO actually wanted Rodney Dangerfield or Joe Piscopo in the title role.
1: Yeah, I can't see Ryan Dangerfield even back then. Joe Piscopo was a little, uh, slightly more believable, I guess. I'm glad, it, you know, I'm kind of <laughs> glad it went network because, you know, back then HBO was not known for its great tv dramas or tv comedies or tv anything like it is now you know they come out with so many different tv shows Mm. um that they release pretty much all at once or or, but back then yeah i i couldn't have seen it no one i think the visibility of this show would have been a lot less than it actually was which wasn't great to begin with yeah so yeah i think that was a good move going to (laughs) an actual
0: network network and And Rodney Dangerfield would you know he he would have been fine as a comedic actor, but you know he'd play it for laughs. This is really a job for the straight man of the you know the traditional comedic archetypes and uh maybe Joe Piscopo could pull it off because he was pretty big back then. but yeah, all along, Alan Spencer wanted David Rashi,
1: yeah, he, he's a great actor. I mean he does such a great job with this,
0: yeah. And it's kind of a weird first choice, because, you know, he's not really a big name in comedy. But evidently, Alan Spencer wanted David Rashi even though the two had never met. But Alan saw photos and read about his performances, and just knew that this was the guy he wanted. It's just the guy he pictured, and the guy he had to get. So uh, it was picked up by ABC for 41 episodes over two seasons, from 1986 to 1988. And it made Alan Spencer the youngest creator of a network series at the age of 26. That's pretty amazing. If you think about it, and I was listening to a great interview that Alan Spencer had uh, maybe a couple of years ago with Jake Fogelnest talking about his, his life in, in career and show business. What an interesting career he's had just from being a young kid, very, very young on the gong show, doing impressions, uh, including one of Maxwell Smart. Which was pretty funny, where he took off his shoe and began talking into it.
1: <laughs> That's funny.
0: And uh, he was a big fan of Get Smart, and uh, especially uh, you know Buck Henry and uh, Leonard Stern, and and he went from there to be a big fan of uh, Marty Feldman. And he tells a story on the Jake Fogelnest's show, The Fogelnest Files, which is not active anymore, but I believe it's still available in the uh, Earwolf archives. If anybody wants to check it out. But he talks about being a kid, having his parents work all the time, and so he was just kind of a latchkey kid. And he got this idea that he was going to take a bus to the Fox lot, cut out a 20th Century Fox logo, and put it in his wallet, pretending it's ID if he ever got stopped. And he joined a bunch of people in suits and actually snuck onto the Fox lot. And they were filming the movie Young Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. And, And so he snuck on, and of course, once you sneak on once... The security guards, they recognize you, so they'll let you pass. Everyone is afraid to ask, who is this kid? Because you never know if it's a studio executive's kid. That, that'll that get you fired, you know, if you yeah. don't know this kid that you're supposed to know. And so he made it on, and Marty Feldman noticed him and, and took him on as, like, his special guest on set. So uh, Alan Spencer was one of the few, as Jake Fogelness pointed out, to see young Frankenstein in color. Oh, that's funny. And, and from there, he... he Got to know Leonard Stern. We'll get into that connection, and uh, yeah, that was kind of his entry into show business, which is pretty amazing, and, and forged this friendship with this guy that he admired, Marty Feldman.
1: That's really funny. It's amazing these the connections that come up when you you know actually dig into these these shows and you know how I would and how people you know it takes a lot of gumption sometimes to make that first leap, you know. And yeah. just imagine if he didn't never did that, we wouldn't have such beautiful things as Sledgehammer. So. <laughs> You know, unfortunately, like you said, it did last uh, the 40, I mean, 41 episodes, and unfortunately, in the second season, was put in a basically a, what they call the Friday night death slot. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that is basically Friday night at nine p.m. and going against Dallas and Miami Vice, which were mm-hmm. of course huge at the time. Sure. So, it, it, unfortunately, its ratings plummeted in the second season because it's, it's just a bad place to be. I really do think, I do kind of remember this, I've I read this somewhere else, too. The series finale, which, you know, is kind of a... They didn't know if they were going to be renewed for a third season. Did you read about what happened at the series finale? <laughs> I did, yes. It's really funny. I think it's a great way to end it. So, the last episode of the the first season which was supposed to be the series finale, because they're going to be canceling it. Basically, it shows Hammer destroying the city. when he uh, uh, there's like a, The plot is about a nuclear warhead. He's trying to disarm it, and it just explodes. <laughs> right when he's saying his catchphrase, you know, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. It just blows up. And, you know, they thought that was a great way to end this, the series. There was going to be no second season. But, unfortunately, um, <laughs> they got a, a second season. So, you know, how do you solve that problem? How do you, you know, retcon <laughs> blowing up and killing the main character of the show? <laughs> so they just did basically, you know, a five years earlier type title screen in the first episode of the second season. Yeah. And, you know, didn't account for the fact that, you know, one of the characters, his partner that we made in this episode, you know, wasn't his partner five years before then. But they just, you know, they didn't care. It's through the news. Yeah, just whatever. <laughs> really funny.
0: Yeah, I read that. That is that is so funny. And this was like 20-plus years before MacGruber, you know, and that that was kind of the the whole hook of that character is that, yes. you know, trust me, I, I know what I'm doing, and explodes. And uh, this is how they were going to end it, just in case, because they never knew if they were going to be picked up or not, but they figured, yeah, we're not coming back. And sure enough, they got that surprise. Yeah, you were renewed, so you're going to figure out something.
1: <laughs> it kind of reminds me of, of Scrubs. I don't know if you've seen that show before, Scott, or watched it. A little it. bit. yeah. I, that's, a, that's a favorite show of my wife and, and mine, Scrubs. We watch it on Netflix all the time. Every year or so, we do another rotation of it. So, you know, Bill Lawrence was the creator of Scrubs, and they went nine seasons. And at the end of the ninth season, I mean, they, they knew what they were going to be done. They created a season and series finale. And he was, you know, he was ready to wrap it up. And I think pretty much everyone else in the series was too. And then, same thing, ABC, I think it was the ABC at the time, Wanted to bring it back for a 10th season. And he wasn't even looking for a 10th season. (laughs) So it's kind of one of those ironic things where he's like, oh, man. So he had to come up with this new idea where it was like a med school scrubs for a season where it brought back a lot of the main characters and, you know, comic scrubs and next generation sort of thing, you know. But it's very rare to see that happening. Like you said, it's more likely to to not know if they're going to get canceled,
0: Mm -hmm. especially
1: back then. I think nowadays it's a little more they, they pretty much know. You know, if they're going to get canned, they can write the series finale with pretty much confidence now. But back in the 80s, they didn't know until the last minute, you know, basically tearing down the sets. I think so many shows ended that way. ALF um, ended that way, <laughs> you know, kind of with a cliffhanger and it ain't know if they're coming back and they didn't go come back. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just interesting. But I thought that was a really funny way that they did that.
0: And of course, like with ALF, it just reminds me, they had to do like a TV movie years later, kind of explained what happened.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, nothing in, in my mind beats the disappointment of the Quantum Leap series finale, <laughs> which is the same kind of thing. You know, they ended it off on the cliffhanger. Watch Quantum Leap if you've never seen the series. Excellent show. And of course, they didn't bring back Quantum Leap. And they just, you know, threw some couple of title cards at the end saying that, the main character never returned, basically. <laughs> and it's, like, so disappointing that they would do it that way. Just, I've been waiting for the Quantum Leap TV movie for, you know, 20 years now. I'm sure they'll reboot it before they do a TV movie. But it's it's very disappointing.
0: Poochie died on his way back to his homeworld.
1: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's That's my favorite, yeah.
0: <laughs> Alright, so we should get right into this. Yes. Uh, this is just uh, such a funny show. So I, I encourage anyone that hasn't seen the show, or even if you haven't heard about it, check it out. It's very much in the vein of those spoof comedies like Airplane and The Naked Gun, and you know, which is, of course, based on the series Police Squad. It's very, very funny. So we start with the opening sequence featuring fast-paced instrumental theme music as we scroll up the handle of a gun, and we see that etched into the gun is the insignia of a sledgehammer.
1: And it should be noted, too, that this music was done by Danny Elfman. Yes. Um, which is kind of funny, because Danny Elfman's a pretty big deal with movies and TV music. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact he did the Sledgehammer theme is, is pretty good.
0: Now, it's very generic, though. It's instrumental. Um, yeah. Just kind of a generic kind of placeholder music. And you, of course, were thinking, why didn't they use Peter Gabriel's song Sledgehammer? You know, at, at that time, it was so big. It would have been perfect, and of course, it was too perfect. It was too big, and uh, the show's creators had the same thought. They wanted to use it, but that meant that the rights were way too expensive for their budget, so they just couldn't use it.
1: It was just good timing. The, show came, the song came out at the same time as the show. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it didn't hurt this sledgehammer, I don't think. There probably was some confusion there. Peter Gabriel fans thinking this maybe was a something to do with the song, but it probably helped the popularity a l- little bit, you know. Talking about the gun, which is a major character mm. in the in the show, is really funny. I thought as a kid, and thought until I watched this again and did some research about sledgehammer, that the sledgehammer logo on the you know handle of the gun was actually a gavel. And I'm like, oh, it's actually, oh, that makes sense. It's a sledgehammer. And I, but you know, one of those things because it kind of looks like a gavel. I mean, sure, and justice yeah. and the whole thing. But I like the fact that it's on this this like satin pillow, and yeah, it's just a very. And he, this his relationship with the gun is just very funny as the series goes on. And it should be noted that the gun it's a forty four Smith and Wesson Model six twenty nine is is this gun, forty four Magnum, first produced in like nineteen fifty five and still produced up to this day. Very powerful gun. I actually looked at some YouTube videos of people firing this gun because I wanted to get kind of a, a reference point of how much damage it did. Yeah, and it, the bullets are are pretty big. I mean, forty-four caliber bullets are pretty—you know—they're they're hefty bullets. So this is not gun to take lightly. It's it's not you know not I'm into guns or anything, but it's something you don't want. to... Fl- it's not a, a twenty-two or a pea shooter. It's it's a pretty hefty piece of uh, armor in here.
0: Oh yeah, it packs a punch for sure. Yeah. And that, that, like you mentioned, that that Dirty Harry connection—very deliberate.
1: Yes, yeah, same gun he used—the very iconic, long-barreled pistol.
0: So, over this sequence, we get the title of the show, "Sledgehammer," in a rocky typeface, and this is two words. This isn't "Sledgehammer." This is "Sledgehammer!" Exclamation point! And uh, we get our opening credits. And as the sequence continues, we see the title character, Sledgehammer, played by David Raschi. Uh, We see him pick this gun up from that white pillow and flip it around as he stands on a city street. He then goes into a shooting pose, says the line, Trust me, I know what I'm doing, and fires at us, the viewers, leaving a bullet hole in the glass of our TV screens. (laughs) The music ends and we fade out to black. I got a couple of notes here about that. Uh, First, his original catchphrase was, I'm crazy, but I know what I'm doing. But ABC did not like that, and they had it changed.
1: Yeah, I could see it without being turned off <laughs> to possible viewers.
0: Yes. Now, if you notice, the bullet hole is actually on the left side of the screen. If you're, you know, a viewer watching it on TV, it's not dead center. And there's a reason for that. Originally, Sledge was supposed to fire dead center at the viewers, but ABC's standard and practices objected. They were afraid that it would scare some viewers into having a heart attack. So they compromised and they let the bullet strike the glass slightly to the left.
1: <laughs> so they only go into a, you know, mild coronary instead of having a massive coronary. Yes. Basically.
0: Now, reportedly, right, when this episode aired and this opening sequence ended as it does with the screen cracking, somebody that was working for an affiliate in the Midwest thought that when that was happening that the station's tape machine was broken. So they panicked and cut the feed to the station logo. Huh. Huh. So, some affiliate, somewhere out in the Midwest, people did not get to see the complete pilot as it aired because someone panicked, quickly glanced at the screen and thought, uh-oh, something's wrong. <laughs> it's a bolt hole in it. So, that's pretty funny.
1: Well, dear viewers, if you're if you one of those people, you know, 30 years ago that couldn't watch Sledgehammer's initial run, buy the DVDs, of course.
0: Yes, of give course. Alan Spencer some money he deserves for it. Go
1: on the Amazon.com or your favorite vendor, eBay, and, you know, if you can find them. <laughs> the Sledgehammer DVDs.
0: So fading in, we open in our episode onto a view of San Francisco at dusk, and we get a view of the Golden Gate Bridge the city skyline. And from here, uh, we, we cut to a van pulling up to a gated community. Over this, we get the title of the episode, Under the Gun, superimposed on the screen. And here we see two ski mask drivers get out, and the guard is shot with a silencer. We then cut to the interior of a bedroom as a young woman is abducted by one of these men in a ski mask.
1: And the funny thing is, I think that the guard, as the guy is coming out with the ski mask, and, you know, he's he's approaching him. I think I, I watched it a couple times to see if I could get the s- close captioning. I think he calls him a ski bum. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, he says, like, stop you ski bum or something like that. <laughs> Maybe he thought he was actually skiing in, with the ski mask.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that s- was... Strange.
1: <laughs> it was just a weird... He had to literally listen to it, but I'm like, what do you call him? And, ski
0: bum. So... This abduction happens. We immediately cut to a newspaper box the next morning as the front page of the San Francisco Dispatch tells us that the mayor's daughter, Francine Flambeau, is missing. And one person buys the paper, but before the box can close, another person steals the rest of the papers.
1: (laughs) It's one of the little subtle things you have to watch out for.
0: There are a ton of just little gags just added in like that, you know? So we next cut to City Hall where Mayor Jack Flambeau, played by John Vernon watches the the news of his daughter's disappearance on the TV in his office. And uh, the news anchor says that she may have been kidnapped or is really good at hiding.
1: I thought that was hilarious, that little thingy. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first really, you know, besides the paper box, clue that this is very much, you know, police squad-ish. Yes. And you get that kind of, you know, little funny, like we talked about, um, Easter eggs, I guess you could say, you have to watch out for.
0: Now, on a side note here, John Vernon played the mayor of San Francisco in the Clint Eastwood movie Dirty Harry. So, John Vernon in the episode taking place in San Francisco, all references to the movie. Yeah. So, it was pretty great that they could get John Vernon kind of playing, uh, a, a, you know, the same role here. Uh, in later episodes, though, it's never established where the show takes place. And in the r- original airing of the pilot, they actually blurred out the name San Francisco on the uh, newspapers.
1: Huh. Well, in the first so, shot, there was a scene of the Golden, well, what you assume is the Golden Gate Bridge, so. Yes. You know, I guess that's how they kind of show you where it is. They didn't want to yeah. offend San Francisco, I guess.
0: I guess. they—they, they, I think they just kind of wanted to keep it fictional, especially when we see what kind of damage and destruction Sledgehammer does. So I think they kind of gave us a little bit of San Francisco, just a parody Dirty Harry, but moving on, I think they were just like, yeah, this doesn't really take place anywhere. Yeah. So next, the chief of police, Chief Reisner, hands the mayor a ransom note that was found in a telephone booth. It reads, we have your daughter. Pay us $1 million or we'll kill her. Details later. Have a nice day.
1: <laughs> it, was like, it was the, uh, you know, the common uh, ransom letter you see. It's, it's all magazine letters cut out and pasted to the paper. Yes. Which I love. It's such a, I wonder if it's, that was ever done before. It must have been at one point, I guess. Or if it's yeah, a work of fiction.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Cause yeah, you, it's a way to not have your handwriting analyzed or matched up with other handwriting. I used, yeah. as a kid, I saw it done on TV and I did that once. I was like cutting out little letters and trying to use it to spell stuff. My parents are like, what are you doing? Don't do that.
1: After yeah, just got off uh, juvie. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the chief also informs the mayor that his security guard is in critical condition. The mayor replies, poor man, he's like an employee to me.
1: That, that was also hilarious. <is>, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the news report on the Mayor's TV moves on to the next story about a liquor store robbery thwarted by Detective Sledge Hammer. And as we mentioned, that's his real name, Sledge Hammer. And uh, I believe it's revealed in a later episode that his father is Jack, Jack Hammer.
1: Oh. I knew his father was mentioned in the other episodes like a trick shooter, right? know his name was Jack Hammer. That's I
0: believe funny. so, and I think his mother also has some sort of play on Hammer as well.
1: Yeah, well, it goes. I, I read about this a little bit more, Sledgehammer's character, and it really, if you look into his backstory, and there's some episodes that really go into it in more detail, that he's, his relations, like, one of his ancestors was, like, Ivan the Terrible, and, um, <laughs> Genghis Khan, one of his, uh, ancestors. So it's like all his history of violence is all his ancestors. Besides, one of them, and it's like one of those other funny uh, little tidbits, they mentioned that one of his ancestors was uh, Gandhi, Mm -hmm. and he was known as the black sheep of the family. (laughs) So I thought that was pretty funny.
0: Wow. So, uh, cutting to this scene, we, we see the reporter, she's live on the scene, she asks Sledge what happened. Standing there wearing sunglasses and holding a paper bag, he casually tells her that two thugs pulled shotguns on the owner. So he shot them dead with his magnum, then bought eggs, milk, and some of those little cocktail weenies. <laughs> and uh, the script here originally said loaves of bread, but then David Rashi improvised the line cocktail weenies. So yeah, that was... That's
1: much funnier. Cocktail weenies are much funnier than bread. Yeah,
0: Can't go wrong with that one. No, not at all. <laughs> and so th- the reporter asked if what he did was necessary. And he says, oh, yes, I had no groceries at all. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, impressed with what he just saw, the mayor shuts off the TV. And asks the police chief who Sledgehammer is. And uh, the, the chief is like, yeah, he's, he's a menace that used to fire warning shots at jaywalkers. <laughs> <laughs> he was on a, a six-month suspension and ordered not to leave his apartment. But uh, the mayor does not care. He wants Sledgehammer on his daughter's case. And the chief tries to warn him, saying that, you know, he even talks to his gun like it's a person. But uh, the, the mayor won't listen. He wants Sledgehammer on this case.
1: Which comes up a few more times, too, during this episode, especially, uh, when he talks to his gun. Um, There's always someone in the background saying, who are you talking to?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which always cracked me up, it's really funny. And, uh, you know, it was even said that during breaks in the show, when they would stop filming, David Rashie would talk to the prop gun to stay in character. (laughs) It's pretty funny. And, And just a little more history on it, the prop gun had a name, it was named Gun. Yeah, gun. (laughs) And and according to the show's creator, Alan Spencer, the gun was later stolen and actually used in a robbery.
1: Oh, really? That's what he said. The actual gun. I think, if memory serves, I don't know what episode this is of the 41, but I think there is an episode of Sledgehammer where he loses the gun or the gun gets taken away or something happens. I'm just going to call it gun since it is a person. (laughs) Um, and it's like this really depressing type of, you know, he just goes into this massive depression. He's not the same without gun. (laughs) I don't know what episode it is, but I remember that very distinctly. He's not the same without gun.
0: That's funny. Yeah, it'd be like Captain America losing his shield or Thor losing his hammer. Yes. So we next cut to a close-up of a gun target being fired upon. From here, we cut to a close-up of Sledgehammer... Wearing ear protection as he continues to fire. And as we slowly cut back, we see that he's not at a gun range or a training facility, but in his apartment. He's like three feet away from the target. <laughs> <laughs> and as we talked about before, this is a very powerful gun. Very, very loud. Very destructive. And he's just in his living room. Firing at a wall. And uh, the phone rings. He stops to answer it. but And you can hear all of his neighbors just shouting and pounding on the walls. It was very, very funny.
1: And basically he's telling them to shut up and, you know, they have to respect while <laughs> he's talking on the phone.
0: He receives the news that he's off suspension and Sledge happily breaks the news to his gun saying that they can't keep a good man down. Me either. <laughs> Just shows you how he views his gun as his real partner here. So we next cut to the interior of Sledgehammer's car, which has all kinds of bullet holes in the windshield.
1: It's actually a, it's a lime green Dodge St. Regis, which I never knew existed. Um, wow. Yeah, is, is his car.
0: In a nice little touch, he has a small gun hanging from the <laughs> rearview mirror. <laughs> yep, yep. He puts in a, a cassette tape of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony as he skids into street signs, parking at a city block. And as he gets out, an officer informs him of a sniper on a roof firing on the streets below. So Sledge tells his gun that there's vermin on the roof, but he has an idea. So he goes to his trunk and gets out a bazooka. Did you notice the bumper sticker? Uh, yeah, I love violence, but bumper sticker.
1: <laughs> or I heart violence.
0: Yeah. yeah this and is like
1: the funniest thing where he takes <laughs> this bazooka out of his trunk.
0: <laughs> yeah, this gunman now is just firing down, continues to fire. Sledge just slowly walks towards the building, calmly sets up the bazooka, and he fires it at the base of the building, causing the entire thing to implode and fall to the ground. It just this huge building just destroyed, presumably with the uh, you know the sniper on top. Obviously, it, uh,
1: stock footage of a actual building demolition. Oh yes. And this is the point in the in the episode where some folks I could see turning it off. Uh, <laughs> <'cause> this is <laughs> the stupidest part of this episode, <laughs> possibly the entire series. But that's you know might be pushing it there. Where it just destroys one bazooka shot destroys the entire building and collapses it.
0: And he turns around and walks away, and as he walks back, he says, I think I got him. (laughs) So we next cut to the police station, where everyone dies for cover upon seeing Sledge enter. Even the criminal
1: behind the door. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) He has a reputation. Uh, He notices one man in the lobby having trouble with a soda machine, so he fires at it, causing it to spew cans and change onto the floor.
1: I thought the way the soda machine popped up the cans was very funny. Yeah. Just like 30 of them
0: all came out at once. And so Sledge next enters the office of Captain Trunk, played by Harrison Page. Uh, Trunk is furious, and screaming about Sledge destroying an entire building just on his way to work. Sledge just defends his actions as his method. He feels that, you know, the only way to defeat criminals is to act more wildly than they do. Out-violence the violent. Yep. (laughs) So uh, after Sledge treats Trunk to a (laughs) neck-crunching chiropractic adjustment... He's informed about the case regarding the mayor's daughter, to which he was actually personally requested. Up to this point, he had not heard about it because, instead of reading the newspaper, he trusts more reliable sources, like rumors and small children.
1: That was a very funny line. (laughs) (laughs) I I almost was thinking about this, and about this line, this rumors and small children line, and I, I still debate with myself if he was actually being sarcastic when he said that, or it was supposed to be like a serious pun about his character do you know what i mean was he say, basically saying well the newspapers are uh, you know untrustworthy basically and the only thing that you know you might as well just listen to rumor and small children or is that his actual life view is he listens to rumors and small children i i still don't have a good answer for that you know what i'm saying
0: yeah yeah i don't was, know i mean because I... being a
1: smart aleck about it and being sarcastic or was he that was his real view
0: uh, I, see, the thing is, with, with this character, I tend to take everything he says at face value.
1: Yeah, and you, you probably should, but I, I just the way he said it was kind of snarky. That's why I, I kind of had that question.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, is Is Sludge capable of making a joke or, you know...
1: Is everything literal, yeah.
0: Being sarcastic, yeah. Yeah. I, I could definitely see him going up to small kids to ask, you know, like, what's the word on the street? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I don't know. So from here, we cut to the mayor's office where Mayor Flambeau tells Sledge how impressed he is with his methods. Things like getting a suspect to talk by tying him to the back of his car and dragging him through half of the city.
1: And he goes on to say, no, no, no it's only around the parking lot.
0: Yeah, very humble. <laughs> so the mayor is about to light a cigarette, but Sledge slowly pulls out a pack of gum for him instead causing the uh, the chief and Captain Trunk to dive for cover.
1: Common reoccurrence, yeah.
0: So next entering the office is a character named Dory Doreau, played by Anne-Marie Martin. She's introduced as a leading expert in her field, to which Sledge asked if that's arranging things in alphabetical order, you know, implying that she's nothing more than a secretary. Yep. Now, just a little backstory on uh, Anne-Marie Martin. She was married to the late Michael Crichton, of course. Famous novelist, writer of Jurassic Park, creator of the show ER, amongst many other works. Yep. Um, Anne Marie was even a uh, part of a dedication in the novel Jurassic Park, and uh, she actually co-wrote Twister with her husband, or yeah, then husband in that 1997.
1: Was yeah, that was interesting. So, side point. No. Yeah. They get divorced eventually, but they were married for a while. Yep.
0: So, of course, Dory Doro is much more than a secretary. In fact, she is a criminal expert who informs them that they've identified the criminal that left the ransom note from a voice message that he's left. And he's part of the criminal group AVON. <laughs> I think
1: it's the little Avon calling joke by Sledgehammer there. Yeah. A ding-dong joke, I believe it was. <laughs>
0: Avon, ding-dong. <laughs> Which, of course, Avon, I think, you know, they're still around. They are a, uh, they were a door-to-door cosmetics company. Yes. Primarily at the time. I think they're more of a catalog company now.
1: I didn't even know they still existed, but yeah. I think
0: they do, but I don't know. I don't buy cosmetics, so. (laughs) Doreau explains that it stands for the Allied Violent Offense Network, as she asks for someone to kill the lights so she can show them a presentation. And of course, Sledge reaches for his gun when he hears the word kill, but he's ordered to put it back.
1: (laughs) I like this little subtle thing here. Before she, when she's plugging in the projector... Uh, that she brings with her. Yeah. She brings a whole projector and a screen. She's plugging into, like, a a, a base. And as she's bending over, all three guys, the mayor, the the chief, and also um, Sledgehammer, are taking a look at her butt. Oh, yeah. It's
0: a little, little subtle
1: thing. And they kind of, she turns back real quick and they all just put their heads up. And the whole nonchalant, oh, we weren't doing anything.
0: Doro really has to fight for respect, in, as, we, as we'll see. Now, turning on the slide projector, Doro shows them the Avon symbol, which is... Did you catch what the the logo was?
1: It's a smiley face with a bullet going through its head.
0: (laughs) Uh, We get a look at the group's leader, Weird Willard Luxley. (laughs) A man so rotten, his parents put him up for adoption three years before he was born.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just,
0: yeah. (laughs) It's like Mad Magazine jokes. It's hilarious. Exactly, yeah. Uh, We next get the gun-toting criminal Feliz Navidad, who poses as Julio Iglesias. I
1: thought that was pretty funny.
0: (laughs) And finally, we see a mugshot of the former member, Kurt Krugel, who was arrested for his love of a fire hydrant, shall we say. Uh, (laughs) It's also mentioned that additional charges were brought on for him parking in front of it, (laughs) which I thought was a great addition to the joke. Yep. now as the slideshow ends, Sledge quickly stands up, telling them, well, I'll just torture Krugel until he tells me the whereabouts of the others. And the mayor's just like, I don't care what methods you use, just bring back my daughter, and uh, Sledgehammer responds, I will, sir. Dead or alive?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they have to reemphasize they, they do want her back alive, oh, not dead.
0: <laughs> so Chief Reisner suggests that Sledge and Darrow team up for the case. And although Sledge objects, you know, because she's a woman. So pulling out his gun, he tells them that the only partner he needs is his amigo right here. And Trunk screams at him and tries to grab the gun away. But in an attempt to protect his prized possession... Sledge grabs Trunks' arm and flips him onto the floor, then apologizes for this reflex.
1: (laughs) So Sledge is very much against having a a partner and a female partner, but eventually goes along with
0: it. Yes. There's a a lot of misogyny on the part of a lot of the people here. So Doro has to really, like I said, work for their respect, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, there's a great line by the mayor as they're leaving. He says um, that Sledgehammer makes Rambo look like Pee-wee Herman.
0: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> uh, still is a good reference.
1: Yeah, I mean, very very 1986, that's perfect reference. Yes. It couldn't have rode it any better.
0: But, uh, you know, like we said, Sledge just has no respect for women, or at least Darrow at this point. You know, he's, he exits and he's like, come on, lady. <laughs> so once they're alone in Sledge's car, he tells Darrow that he's the man, he's the guy, he calls the shots. And uh, he calls the shots and fires the shots. <laughs> Offended, Darrow asks if, well, do you also think women should be barefoot and pregnant? And Sledge replies, no, I encourage women to wear shoes. <laughs> it's just like terrible. But th- that joke structure, it just reminds me so much of Get Smart.
1: Yes. Yeah. that's the,
0: ca- the same kind of like snappy comeback that, uh, you know, Maxwell Smart, Don Adams character would have. Yes. You know, so you could see uh, the influence that uh, it really had on him, on Alan Spencer writing this. So as this exchange goes on, they, they haven't even left yet. They notice a purse snatcher trying to make a break for it right in front of them. And uh, Sledge reaches over Darrow, opening her door and tripping the thief. And he returns the, the purse to the lady it was stolen from and draws his gun on the thief. <laughs> <laughs> and Darrow, she's trying to, like, warn him. You, know, you can't commit police brutality right in front of City Hall. So uh, Sledge comes up with a different plan.
1: Yeah, this is pretty funny. The sound <laughs> effects crack me up.
0: <laughs> you want to explain this? Yeah, you
1: know? so basically, you know, Sledge is pointing the Smith & Wesson at him and basically saying, hit yourself, hit yourself in the face. And he does kind of get this weak little punch to himself, you know, the guy against the car. And he goes into this whole routine, and Sledge is like, no, no, you can't do that. I'll, I'll shoot you, basically, if you don't do better than that. And he starts just, you know, punching himself extremely hard in the face and he's like okay now do your stomach he's hitting himself in the stomach and he's banging his own head against the roof of the car <laughs> and finally he just falls over unconscious it's really ridiculous but funny
0: yes and sledgehammer next turns to dory duro and delivers the line trust me i know what i'm doing mm-hmm. this is terrible like you well i can't commit police brutality so you brutalize yourself uh, so now turning their intentions to the mission at hand Sledge and DeRose beat away on their search to find Krugel as the purse thief lies just passed out on the curb. Two guys
1: step over him. That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. 2 in-city employees in conversation.
0: <laughs> and uh, from here, we cut to black and to commercial. So at this point, the show goes into a commercial break. So why don't we take this opportunity to take a commercial break ourselves? We'll pay some bills and we'll be right back. Quick story for you. I wake up in the middle of the night last night, starving, hungry, I walk into the kitchen. The lights aren't on, but there's a glow coming through the window. Turns out, it's a thing called the moon. It's like the sun, but for nighttime. Who knew? I didn't know. So next time you're up in the middle of the night, check it out. The moon. It's the sun for nighttime. Paid for by a crazy old guy. And we're back. So we open at night on the unseemly part of town with all kinds of clubs and sleazy hotels. Sledge and Darrow arrive at a motel and rush the door, uh, even though he wants Darrow to wait in the car. Now, uh, if you notice here, there's the numbers on the doors of the hotel rooms. Did you happen to catch this?
1: Uh, let me go back. I'm looking at it right now as we see. I did catch one other thing I'll mention. Uh, 86.
0: Yes, 86 and 99. Those were the numbers of the agents from Get Smart.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I forgot about that. Okay.
0: And that's that's a nod to Leonard Stern, who I had mentioned. He's the executive producer of Get Smart and was a consultant on Sledgehammer. Oh, that's funny yeah I thought that was great and that, that's something I, I had to look up I didn't I didn't notice that in my viewing so now kicking down the door we see Kurt Krugel wearing a towel and getting massaged by three women uh, Sledge orders the masseuses in their native Swedish somehow to wait in the bathroom and uh, Krugel is amazed by Sledgehammer's usage of perfect Swedish and Sledge reveals that okay ladies wait in the john are the only words that he knows it's
1: he can say it's Swedish <laughs>
0: Now, did uh, Kurt Krugel look familiar to you, Sean?
1: He does. I- I'm still trying to play some. I didn't look up his name.
0: This is, uh, he's played by Don Stark. Dawn he's a Stark. character actor. You may remember him as Donna's father on that 70s show.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Very, very much younger, uh, Donna's father.
0: Yes. Oh, yes.
1: No, you really have to picture him with the perm and, and you know, yeah. Definitely, uh, his younger acting days.
0: So, uh, Sledge orders him to put on some clothes so he can take him in for questioning. And uh, Krugel asks, you know, can you turn around while I change? And so he complies. And as he does, Krugel pulls out a gun on Sledge, telling him to drop his gun. And uh, yeah, this was uh, a great moment.
1: Yes, where he turns it slightly so that the uh, barrel is pointing towards Krugel, drops it, and it fires as it hits the ground and knocks the gun out of his hand. <laughs>
0: He knows that gun so well, he could just find that precise angle to drop it at.
1: That's going to go off, yeah.
0: Hilarious. So now hearing the shot, Doro comes in with her gun drawn, along with a man in a cowboy hat that's holding a rifle. Yeah. And she just elbows that guy, and karate kicks him to the floor. Sledge is very impressed by her excessive violence and invites her to a fight sometime. (laughs) And uh, she happily agrees, saying, oh yeah, I was first in my class in hand-to-hand combat.
1: I'm totally serious about having to fight, too, and she kind of accepts, so it's kind of nice.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll see that Doro and Sledgehammer aren't that much different. Yeah, they
1: they, she's a little, you know, shocked by his behavior at first, but really tends to, it gets to grow on him.
0: Yes, definitely. Oh, and then Doro asked Sledge, you know, who was the guy in the cowboy hat? And Sledge said, oh, it's just the hotel manager, he's a good friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> just this older guy that just got slammed to the ground and knocked out. For no reason, really. So they leave with Krugel in custody, and uh, we next cut to the police station where he is being interrogated.
1: And the interrogation uh, is very funny. (laughs) Especially when he pours hot coffee on his crotch, because he says he's cold. Yeah. And, you know, because he's in in his boxer shorts. I hold him in his boxer shorts. grabs a pot of, you know, hot coffee and pours
0: it right (laughs) in his crotch. (laughs) sludge is so brutal.
1: Yeah. Grabs him by the throat and, you know... The Rose is just like, you know, shocked and like, you can't do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, Sledge, he pours it on his lap and then he shrugs. He's like, oh, I forgot to give you a cup. <laughs> terrible. So Krugel refuses to tell them anything. He's calling them pigs and oinking at them. So Sledge drags him out of his chair and says that he's going to bring him to the circus.
1: And this is, this is so uh, example of such a ridiculous premise of this show where... In the police station, in the interrogation room, there is a a, a full you know, like a knife throwing wheel. You know, if you can yeah. picture that, where there's a there's a a background of a, a guy putting his arms out, and Krugel you know goes over and, and does it right away, and is begging, you know, don't shoot, and there's balloons on you know placed on the thing. It's like, why would this ever be there in the first <laughs> place? And it's something. It's not like a a temporary thing. It's something that looks like it's used all the time. Yeah. And it just happens to be a rifle there. So Sledge didn't use the Smith & Wesson for this thing. He uses the, the rifle. Yeah. And it, it just starts shooting and popping the balloon. It's like, what is, what is this? <laughs>
0: it's a very strange tactic. You, you wonder who got this thing installed. Yeah. You know, this is like, very much a sledgehammer idea.
1: I mean, in talk, of, yeah, it's obviously it looks think like it's used before. There's like footprints. On the thing where he stands on, it's like, what is this? (laughs) And, you know, he's firing a rifle in the police station, and there's you see people walking outside in the hallway, and no one's, you know, looking or turning their heads or anything. It's like normal, everyday routine. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that the guy's cooperating with the whole thing, you know, this is hilarious. (laughs) This this is the second scene where somebody, if they didn't see the first scene with the bazooka in the uh, of a rocket launcher in the uh, building, they might want to turn it off at this point if they were looking for a serious cop show.
0: Oh, yeah. So Sledge shoots one of the balloons. That's enough to get Krugel to start talking. He says Luxley wanted to get the gang back together to kidnap the mayor's daughter. That's all he'll say. So Sledge shoots another one. And Krugel admits that Luxley has someone working on the inside. Sledge then shoots out a third balloon from behind his back using only a hand mirror. He's doing trick shots now. Yeah. And Krugel says, okay, it's someone close to the mayor, but Luxley wouldn't say. So that's not enough for Sledge. He asks Darrow to put a blindfold on him. Which and does, he does, attem-
1: with, no, with no hesitation.
0: Oh yeah, she, you know, she objects to some things, but at this point she's like, okay, it's working, I'll put the blindfold on you, keep going. And he attempts to shoot out the balloon above Krugel's head. And he's like, oh, this is the shot that I always miss. And he aims the gun like just so wildly. <laughs> yeah, it's just moving all around. And uh, Krugel said, "Okay, it's someone that the mayor owes a lot of money to." And then he screams, falling to the floor as Sledge makes the shot. Yeah, Krugel's like, "You hit the balloon," and Sledge replies, "Yeah, I know, I missed." <laughs> pretty, pretty great. Yeah, it, again, yeah. just reminds me of Get Smart. So yeah, funny. Yeah,
1: just very Get Smartish. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So funny. Classic comedic style. So we cut to Sledge and DeRoe at the busy police offices. DeRoe looks up everyone on the mayor's payroll while Sledge is just kind of sitting there playing with a paper airplane. And uh, she asks, you know, why are you so prejudiced against computers? And he says it's because he met his wife through a computer dating service, uh, ex-wife, because she ran off with a geek from the Peace Corps. (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny, computer dating service in 1986, but I I guess they were around.
1: Yeah, I I think they are in their infancy, but they existed. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Probably more of a computer matching, yes. you know, than a uh, than actually going because there was not really an internet, yeah, available at that time.
1: I think it was more of you put your profile in and you know they would match it together somehow. So
0: and a big Professor Frank type computer with lights and spinning reels gives you an answer. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, Sledge's ex-wife evidently uh, was upset that he brought his work home with him. But, you know, he says that's something that he just has to do. He can never let his guard down. But as Daronex points out, that's exactly what he was doing and kind of sharing his feelings with her. So uh, after that personal moment between the two, you can tell they were trying to grow these characters' relationship a little bit, kind of advance it. Uh, they focus their attention back to the case. And Sledge really suspects the mayor's wife, even though she's someone that's very highly respected in the city. He just has it in his head. it's It's got to be her. Yeah. And so Darrell looks her up, and she's showing Sledge, you know, this is Mrs. Flambeau's record of charitable donations, uh, which includes almost everything except Sledge's favorite charity. Did you catch that?
1: Yes, yeah. His favorite charity is uh, Guns for Tots.
0: Yeah. So just then, Captain Trunk, who's now in a neck brace, because remember... Sledge uh, violently slammed him to the floor in an earlier scene. He screams to Sledge that Krugel is now filing a complaint against him for his carnival-like method of questioning. <laughs> and uh, Darrow trying to defend him, but Trunk won't have it. He storms off, and as he does, Sledge throws the paper airplane at him, and it sticks in his hair as he walks away.
1: <laughs> Which is pretty funny, you know, up about it.
0: <laughs> and Sledge's face, you know, as he sees it, like, oh. So now going back to the case, Sledge once again accuses the mayor's wife, Mrs. Flambeau, saying, oh yeah, it's gotta be her, she kidnapped her own daughter, and DeRoe completely disagrees with the theory, but she said, you know, well, I'll still back you up, I'll go with you to talk to the mayor. So uh, as she walks away to make some phone calls before they leave, Sledgehammer looks at her and smiles. He then pulls out his gun and says to it, I like her.
1: As we get when of these other lines where someone in the background says, who are you talking to? <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: I love that. And in fact, even in the bazooka scene earlier, there was a, a point where he's talking to the gut and the other cop's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very funny. So we next cut to City Hall where Sledge is really trying to sell the mayor on his new theory, you know, that his wife is the kidnapper. And the mayor is just like calling it completely absurd. And, you know, this is where we once again get the line. Trust me, I know what I'm doing.
1: Yeah. And they actually, they actually haul in the wife who's like bound and gagged <laughs> with shopping bags. Like they just kidnapped her off the street and brought her in, and he ends up calling her a piece of white trash.
0: <laughs> uh, and, and Sledge apologizes for how she is being treated, but he said it's because she was resisting arrest. <laughs> So the mayor rips the tape off of her face, she screams. And when you know, we get that that line about, you know, lying, deceitful, and all this stuff, and, and the mayor's like, Yeah, I've known that for years, but she had nothing to do with the kidnapping. <laughs> so this was enough. You know, the mayor has seen just, you know, exactly what he got himself into. So he he orders the chief to put Sledge back on that suspension, but now for the rest of his life.
1: <laughs> he has to stay in his apartment, get not leave his apartment.
0: So, Sludge doesn't understand, but the mayor says, well, he just got a call from the kidnappers, naming a drop-off location, demanding a private jet, and uh, he also asks Darrow to be the one to deliver the ransom. So, it couldn't have been the wife, because she was in Sludge's custody.
1: Yeah, when this came in.
0: So, Sludge objects to having Darrow be the messenger, because, you know, he said she'll probably be killed. So, he volunteers to take her place. Uh, And Captain Trunk is like, that is a terrific idea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) reoccurring theme throughout the series, where he's trying to, everything he can do to get him either off the force or killed.
0: But uh, the mayor doesn't want Sledge to go in there, because he's afraid it's going to cause a shootout. And if his daughter's involved, you can understand why he doesn't want Sledge anywhere near her. Yeah. So the chief then orders Sledge back to his apartment now, asks for his badge, and Sledge leaves, telling Darrow to be careful.
1: Still has right. the paper airplane stuck in his hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's <pretty> funny. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So we next got to later that night at I, I don't know this is like a, an abandoned factory.
1: Yeah, some kind of factory I made mean, candles or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah, a lot so of statues. Weird
1: stuff. Yeah.
0: Uh, one of the crates, if you look at it, it, it says John Bernadello and Sons Import and Export. Yeah. So it could could be just like a Pure One Imports type of <laughs> warehouse so or he, something. And uh, we see Duro get out of the car with a briefcase full of money. So, uh, finding no one around, she steps inside, and all of a sudden, she's confronted by the two men in ski masks that we saw at the beginning of the episode. And one man removes his mask, and we see that it's the guy from the slideshow, Weird Willard Luxley. Yep. And, uh, he has very strange, like, dramatic mannerisms.
1: Yeah, yeah, dog collar around his neck. Yeah. Very Weird guy.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. He calls Darrow Foxy, he asks her for the cash, but she first asks to see the mayor's daughter. So now the other unmasked man, who we now know is the other guy from the slideshow, Feliz Navidad, (laughs) drags Francine Flambeau out, and we see she's unharmed. So she tells DeRoe that uh, she hasn't eaten in a day and a half, and she missed last night's dynasty. Which is funny. Yeah.
1: Uh, Very good 80s reference.
0: Because that was a must-see viewing, for sure. Oh, yes. (laughs) So uh, a third man, uh, with a gun, steps over, and he pats down DeRoe. DeRoe tells Francine that You know, she can throw out her victimized-by-society routine saying that she knows that she was an accomplice in her own kidnapping. So that's kind of the twist of the episode. We didn't see this coming. Yeah, yep. And Dory DeRoe was onto it. She kind of figured it out. Because remember, Krugel said it had to be someone close to the mayor on the inside.
1: Yeah, she took a shot and, and the mayor's daughter definitely, at this point admitted, and, and takes the gun from one of the guys and, you know, says, okay, the jig's up, points it at her. One, one thing I love about this next upcoming scene is that it's very much an 80s gun battle shootout, and of course this was ABC. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can't have violence or excessive violence, but this is a really funny... Another show that reminded me of this was the A-Team. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, they were just firing automatic weapons around like crazy, and no one ever got hit. <laughs> you know, in this same kind of scene coming up, where it just constant gunfire and violence, and no one's getting shot. Not one person gets hit.
0: Yeah, a lot of things explode, you know, from being hit. You yeah. know, a lot of cr- a lot of empty crates and, you know, pallets and stuff in this. But that's about it. Yep. A lot of statues, of course, you know, like plaster statues. But, uh, yeah, also, uh, I should have mentioned this too. Darrow, I guess, researched some more of the mayor's financial records. She talks about this. And she found that Francine, the mayor's daughter, and Luxley attended the same college at the same time, and she assumed that they're probably an item. Yes. And, uh, yeah, Francine kind of just admits she loathes her father. This is her way to escape him, along with her friends, in a private jet, with a million dollars. Yep. Of course, we next see that Darrow asks, You'll kill me for a briefcase full of shredded paper? And she throws the briefcase to the floor, and one guy opens it, and there's only confetti inside. There was no money there. All of a sudden... Someone crashes through the skylight, landing on a stack of wooden pallets. And it's none other than Sledgehammer along with his trusty gun. And uh, they ask, you know, why are you smiling? And he says, it's because he's trigger happy. (laughs) And he just has this insane look. Uh, And Sledge even says, like, he has an aerobics class in the morning. So he jumps down to get to work. Luxley fires at him, actually shooting him in the shoulder.
1: Yeah, or skimming. It's like a flesh wound.
0: Yeah, it it grazes uh, him.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And, uh, yeah, he's just furious that now his best sports jacket is ruined. And he's like, now I'm really mad. <laughs> and this is like you mentioned. We get the shootout. Get he the fires shootout at up. A, yeah. He shoots at a fire extinguisher. And then he hides in the spray. Then he shows up on a rope. And he swings in and kicks Felice Navidad's gun out of his hand.
1: He it, it, it lands and he has all this, like, I don't know, like, packing paper on him or packing confetti. It's really, <laughs> it's a lot going on.
0: Yeah, it's a, you know, very physical scene. A lot of statues getting shot, rows of statues being fired upon. And then Sledge comes to a very happy realization in the middle of the shootout.
1: Yep, and he's actually carrying a hand grenade.
0: And he almost forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so all three of the gang members, they're, they're continuing to fire. Sledge throws the grenade, which bounces away, but it still causes a large domino effect amongst the boxes of goods, and that traps them underneath.
1: Yeah, so again, not actually killing them, but just trapping them. Yeah. You, th- you think, okay, at this point, when a great, uh, grenade's involved, they're dead. You know, gonna, it's going to land right where it's supposed to, and that's going <laughs> to be it. Yeah. yeah, a nice little line there, too, about he's, he, how he, he's glad he found the hand grenade before he brought the jacket to the dry cleaners. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's pretty funny. So, with only Francine left, Sledge says, you know, three down, one to go. And he finds Francine with her gun drawn on Duro. Francine orders him, you know, drop your gun or I'll kill her. And Sledge encourages her to shoot, saying that once he shoots Darrow, then he will kill Francine. Like, he doesn't care. He's just a madman.
1: Yeah, yeah, at this point.
0: So Francine kind of thinks for a moment. Then she pushes Darrow to the ground. Then says, it's just the two of us now. And now she once again orders Sledge to drop his gun, saying, oh, I know you'll never shoot a woman. So Sledge immediately shoots at her. And he expertly fires the gun out of her hand as she falls back.
1: And her hand's fine, of course.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> Hit he's perfectly. An so
1: this pops it out. I thought it was funny. I mean, Francine's not very good. You know, she's not a criminal mastermind here. You no. Know, giving away your hostage is probably the worst thing to do if you're, you know, in that position. And that she just tosses her to the ground or pushes her aside and thinks she's going to go one on one against Sledgehammer. <laughs> um, this is very funny. Again, no violence, no real violence, no blood. Just magically no. shoots out of her hand. I think the Mythbusters did an episode on that one time to show how, you know, if it's possible to do that. Because this happens a lot in these kind of shows. Yeah. Where they shoot a gun out of, like, a mannequin's hand. And it just basically shows it's impossible, pretty much, to do it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's been done by, like, expert snipers. I've seen, like, one time I saw on TV where it was actually done in a yeah. hostage situation. But very, very difficult. You need, like, you know, a, a expert sharpshooter. This isn't something you can just do with a handgun on the spot.
1: No, no. I think that even expert sharpshooter doing it, there's going to be some damage to that person's hand. Oh, yeah. It, it's not like it just flies out and their hand's perfectly fine.
0: There was a line here where Francine says, You're not going to shoot at a woman. And, of course, he immediately does. And then he says, sorry, Francine, call me a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really uh, not a word I would use to describe Sledgehammer. No,
1: yeah, yeah. But he says he's not biased against one group or another.
0: So Darrow runs up to Sledge to see if he's okay. And uh, he says that anytime a sports jacket gets ruined, it hurts. <laughs> and then she even says, you know, thank goodness you followed me here. And he says, don't thank goodness, thank gun. <laughs> I'm just thinking, this is not a show that would probably be greenlit today.
1: No, not at all. There would have to be some real big gaps in the schedules to have this get through.
0: Yeah, it would not be on network TV anyway. No. Just, things are too different nowadays. So, uh, thanks Sledgehammer, but he turns away in disgust, saying, you know, enough warmth, as we cut to commercial. (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) So, when we return, we open on the mayor's office, just as the mayor says, My own daughter, just like her mother an idiot. His
1: his turn is really funny, too. He's like, okay, oh well. (laughs) just kind of brushes it off. Back to business.
0: Yes. These are all, like, self-contained episodes, so it's like, alright, that story's over. Yeah, yeah. She's just an idiot. But uh, the mayor thanks Duro, Sledgehammer, and Captain Trunk for a job well done. Uh, The chief tells Duro she's getting a promotion. Uh, She doesn't understand why, because really, Sledge is the reason she's alive. But the chief says that you know, Hammer broke the rules and will remain on suspension. And even though she says it's not fair, the mayor and the chief tell her to worry about her own career. Yeah. And uh, they even give her this pre-written acceptance speech to read to the reporters waiting outside. Very political at this point. Oh, yes, because it's uh, the speech mentions uh, her admiration for the mayor's administration. This is a, a speech we find out that the mayor wrote himself. Mm. So uh, DeRoe, you know, respectfully declines the promotion. And the mayor is outraged. Uh, Captain Trunk asks if, you know, he heard correctly. And uh, Sledge takes out his gun and fires into the ceiling. (laughs) Plaster (laughs) falls down. Yes. (laughs) And then he says, uh, seems like you're hearing pretty well. (laughs) That was hilarious. And so Darrow looks at Sledge and she says, let's go, partner. And the chief tells her, you know, you're off your rocker. And, of course, she puts on sunglasses just like Sledge Hammers and replies, true, but I know what I'm doing. And Sledge puts on his sunglasses, the two walk out the door, and we fade to black. Yep. Cutting back, we finish with the closing credits over stills from the episode along with the theme music.
1: You get the, the famous bazooka shot. That was pretty funny. <laughs> this is a perfect 1980s closing credits with the overshots, the overviews of the, uh, the scenes of the episode. Oh, yeah. Very, per- I mean, quintessential 1980s at show.
0: Yeah, basically, you, you either it would freeze on the last frame or you'd get still shots or something. Yeah. Yeah. Very not until much later would we get shows like giving us a little extra with maybe the credits scrolling underneath or over it. Yeah. Yeah, th- this was the end of the sledgehammer pilot. Pretty uh, pretty funny.
1: Yes. Yeah, very funny. Definitely worth a watch, especially if you're into that kind of uh, you know, police squad get smart type humor. You'll definitely appreciate this. And you got to just know that you're going into a comedy. This is not Meant to be a realistic cop show, but there, are, you know, a lot of interesting guest stars throughout the run of um, Sledgehammer, and uh, actually a, a, a number of them that were pretty interesting. Davy Jones, Clint Howard, Ron Howard's brother, were both mm-hmm. in the episode. And uh, of course, we talked about um, Don Stark it was in two episodes, actually this one and also uh, Sledge Pooh. Believe it or not, um, <laughs> you know some just some. Very much C and B level actors playing parts. One I thought was interesting, uh, actually two I thought was interesting, a Star Trek connection. Brent Spiner was in an episode of Sledgehammer. Nice. And also, also Armin Shimmerman. Do you know who that is? No. He played Quark in uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh. <laughs> was, <laughs> nice. a, was in an episode of uh, Sledgehammer. Bill Bixby was in an episode and also directed a number of the
0: episodes. Yeah, I saw that too. That was interesting. Yeah,
1: interesting. Jackie Cooper directed a few episodes of the show. Just a very interesting number of guest stars they had, guest appearances.
0: Yeah. Now, many have cited this show as being very influential. Uh, as we mentioned, it went on to have that second season, much to the surprise of those working on the show. And, uh, you know, we as we talked about, they kind of destroyed everything, including the main characters and the city at the end of the first season. And season two starts uh, five years previous to season one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Also notable, Marvel Comics produced a Sledgehammer comic book. Huh. Based on the show. Uh, It was canceled after two issues. Oh. But it's pretty funny. You you can actually find, yeah, Sledgehammer issue number one and two. And I think uh, there's a... I know Spider-Man makes a cameo in at least one of the episodes. Yeah. Which, you you know, is always a a sign that they really want to get the issue into readers' hands. Also kind of interesting, after this show... Uh, in 1992, you know, this was like a couple years after the show was canceled, New Line Cinema approached Alan Spencer with an idea to make Sledgehammer a feature film. Hmm. And they were going to make it a parody of Lethal Weapon, but all the characters were going to be new, and Alan Spencer was kind of attached to the project, and he just rejected all the scripts, he passed on the idea of the all-new characters, And New Line's idea was remade as the Emilio Estevez and Samuel L. Jackson movie, Loaded Weapon 1.
1: Huh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's tough to say, well, okay, well, we're going to make Sledgehammer a Lethal Weapon parody, and now we're going to, like, create new characters. It's just, they were trying to put a a square peg in a round hole, it seems.
1: That would have been very interesting if they would have, you know, gone along with that. Yeah, but Loaded Weapon 1 is actually pretty good, if you ever see that. It's it's pretty (laughs) funny.
0: That's that's debatable, but okay. But yeah,
1: it's, it's not bad. <laughs> Interestingly, the international versions, because this, you know, uh, Sledgehammer has gone international. Mm-hmm. Did you see the, what they're called in international versions?
0: No, All I didn't catch names. that.
1: So in France, the series is called Mr. Gun. <laughs> Italy, it's known as uh, Truppo Forte, which means too strong in Italian. Uh, Japan, I am Hammer. Let's see, there's some other ones. Germany, Der Hammer. was. <laughs> the series is called
0: the hammer yeah, the hammer
1: <laughs> and also the gun had a name in the german version called Susie. huh this is interesting it was like a dubbing dubbing joke interesting and just a number of other Finnish, the sledgehammer man danish <laughs> full hammer you know definitely and as we mentioned before it was put on dvd the entire series yep back in 2004 well, that
0: was a, a shout factory release i believe
1: uh yeah, I think you're correct. Yeah, they
0: put out a lot of like little-known series, a lot of cool stuff, and they do the Mystery Science Theater box sets. Yes,
1: yeah. It talks about the unaired versions on the DVD and also commentary by Spencer. So it's it's definitely available to buy uh, if you can find it on. You know, I don't think it's probably out of print. Um, no,
0: I'm sure it's still around. Yeah. Anyway.
1: Well, it, it definitely a, a a really an '80s show, Sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it wasn't as popular as a, as a uh, you know, Family Ties, it <laughs> does have its place in 80s TV show Legends. Definitely worth a watch.
0: Yes, definitely. And I'm glad you brought this up. This is a show that I've heard about. I never really got the chance to see it. But I kept hearing about how funny it was and, uh, you know, how uh, influential it was to many people and how... Alan Spencer was influenced by Get Smart, which I always loved watching on Nick at Night as a kid. So, you know, this is definitely a a show I could get into, especially, like, uh, how it's around the same time as, like, Police Squad and the Naked Gun movies, which, you know, growing up are always, like, my favorite. I still think that's hilarious. And so, yeah, I'm glad uh, you recommended this because this was way off my radar. And uh, hopefully uh, people will track this down. And, yeah, buy the DVDs because I I think the Alan Spencer commentaries will be pretty interesting because he has a a lot of interesting stories.
1: Yes, yeah, it's it, it's definitely the format to get it in. Um, YouTube is great for a lot of things. That's where we saw this episode. But yeah, definitely support you know Alan Spencer. Support the the companies and, and buy these these DVDs. It's worth having in your collection. I'm sure you could pick it up for almost a song at this point. Yeah, so it's not going to be a huge investment for you. And it's just nice to have as a something to talk about or just you know show your grandkids someday. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and again, this is a show that influenced me enough where I remember details about the episodes 30 years <laughs> later. And I can't say that for a lot of, of 80s shows. You know, talking about like Family Ties, I like that show too. I can't remember a lot of episodes of Family yeah. Ties or what happens. But this one is, is very, had an impression on me as a youngster. And like I said, as, as we're talking, I brought up a few different points I remember, that I just remember just talking about it, so just just a funny show, just funny and just give it a give it a watch mm. uh, definitely worth checking out if you want to giggle
0: Alright, and that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions what inanimate objects you talk to whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play And Sean, do you have anything you want to plug?
1: Yeah, I have a, we have a YouTube channel, Three Blind Mice, which I occasionally post Minecraft-type stuff with my son. And also his channel is Ender Coder on YouTube. You can search Ender Coder and hopefully find that. Um, that's about it.
0: Okay, I am on uh, Twitter. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I am also on Vine, which is now kind of going away, but uh, you dead. can check my stuff out there. My name there is MC and Friends. I do flip-page cartoons and... Little humorous animations. And uh, I just joined Instagram. My name there is MC underscore and underscore friends. And there I'm posting some of my drawings. And I will be posting a lot of the uh, flip page animation. So uh, you can follow me there as well.
1: Instagram, his Instagram page is fantastic already. It's only been less oh, than a week. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> uh,
0: if you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five star review. It helps us out. And if you do, you will get a shout out on the show. For Android users, we are also available to stream in or download on Stitcher. We can be found on TuneIn Radio and the Google Play Music app. So check us out there. And uh, if you have a Roku device, you can download the TuneIn Radio channel and you can uh, listen to these episodes right as they're posted and stream them right on your television. Well, we have been Sean and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening.
1: Trust me, I know what I'm doing.